Thank you. Let's keep praying and let's keep supporting. And let's see how God will continue to allow us to partner with this ministry. Isn't it exciting? I mean, there's so much rotten stuff that uh, has been uh, done through the Internet. Isn't it great to, and refreshing to hear some good things that God is doing? It is a tool, and it can be used for great good or great evil. And praise the Lord for that. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at one verse here, and then um, we're not going to just have you look up on the screen to follow, because I'm going to be flying through this. All right, I got three pages of notes, and I got to get through this tonight. So I'd like to get through this tonight. I think it'll make more sense if we're able to do that rather than have to continue it next Sunday. So uh, I'm going to be speaking a little more quickly. You listen a little bit more quickly, and, uh, and I trust that we can get uh, through this in a way that will be helpful. Again, uh, the things that we're going to look at tonight from the Word of God, I think there are some very specific applications to men, um, especially the first point that we're going to look at in just a couple of minutes. But spiritual maturity ought to be the goal of every believer, male and female. And uh, putting on the character of Christ and being transformed and continuing to grow ought to be happening in every believer's life, not just in men. Last week, when we were looking at what does it mean to have a meek and quiet spirit wherein you are a naturally outgoing personality, and we were looking in the context of 1 Peter chapter 3, and though that applies in context there uh, to, to ladies, Paul, or Peter, excuse me, is addressing ladies in the context of that passage, we understand that really that applies to all believers, um, and there are principles that we can glean and things that God has for us. Same thing from this tonight. You know, we are in an identity con uh, crisis in this country, are we not? Where people can identify as whatever they want. I, I remember seeing um, a little reel or something that somebody sent to me of these people who um, really want the, you know, the, the ethical treatment of, and the preferential treatment of animals even over people. And so they wanted to have some sort of an equestrian event, but they didn't want to use real horses. And so you've seen grown people with stick horses going through an equestrian competition as if the stick horses were actually alive. Um, there are people who, who one time, uh, they, they kind of dressed up like a group of people that dressed up like sheep and ran around on all fours out in a pasture, uh, hired a guy to be the shepherd to guide them around so that they could, they could kind of get in. And I mean, and they're eating grass. They're trying to eat grass and all this stuff. And they're trying to fit in with real sheep. And they want to get, they want to be able to understand, you know, the inner soul of a sheep or something like that. They were identifying as sheep. You people can identify as whatever they want these days. I mean, let alone this whole thing of, of gender, gender, you know, uh, fluidity and, and all of that. And, and in the middle of all that, it's not like, what, um, what, is a, what is a real man? What is, what is a real lady? And so tonight, I think there really is a place for us. Uh, what, what is a real man according to or from a biblical perspective? And we do have a lot of cultural ideals, all right? And uh, those cultural ideals change, but God's word doesn't. So we're going to look at what the word of God has to say. But my mind immediately goes here to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11, where Paul writes to the Corinthians, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I'm going to come back to that at the end of the message. So really, we're going to go in, in, in full circle and I could preach a message just from this passage of Scripture tonight about what it means to speak like a man and understand like a man. 
and think like a man instead of as a child. And the idea there is that, uh, that Paul is talking about God has produced spiritual maturity in me. All of us understand that just because a person reaches a certain chronological age does not mean they have reached a certain level of maturity. And as the same thing in the spiritual realm, just because you've been saved for a certain amount of years does not automatically mean that you have a certain level of spiritual maturity that just comes with the passing of time. Now, it certainly ought to be true that as time goes on that we not only grow in our understanding and our knowledge, but in our relationship with Christ and being transformed into his likeness in our character. And so the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we understand in our perspective on life ought to be that which is one of a mature believer. But we're looking at tonight, we are looking what it means to be a real man from a biblical perspective, setting aside cultural and traditional ideals of manhood. What does the Bible say a real man, a godly man, should look like? A man is not defined by popular opinion, by what or by what he does, but by who he is. So a real man, first of all, has a tough hide and a tender heart. That's our first point tonight. A real man has a tough hide and a tender heart. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means he's not easily offended by insults, gossip, snubs, or personal attacks. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 23, the Bible says of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And of course, though that would be on something that we would call a sublime plane, that that would be even higher uh, than what most of us would face. Yet I believe that that is, is true, whether it is a minor or a major thing that a real man is, has a tough height and that he is not easily offended by insults, gossip, snubs, or personal attacks. We too often in our culture cave to popular opinion. Peer pressure isn't just for teenagers, folks. The mob cried out, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. They challenged him. He plainly claimed to be Messiah. They knew it. And yet they're challenging him to prove himself that he is Messiah. They're basically saying, you're not Messiah. If you're Messiah, go ahead and prove it. But what did he pray instead, instead from the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Second of all, he is humble and teachable. That's where the tender heart comes in. The Bible says of Jesus in Hebrews 5 and verse 8, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered and so our Lord himself was teachable. We also ought to have tender hearts to be teachable. It's too easy for us when we men are confronted to defend ourselves, to make excuses, or to listen until somebody is finished just to kind of appease them and go on our way without really stopping and listening and considering and truly thinking and taking to heart what has been said. And that's different than caving in to personal attacks and snubs. We, we ought to be able to take insults and affronts and attacks, uh, but we also need to be able to take loving rebuke and confrontation. It also means that he is disciplined and demands more of himself than of others. Look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26, and remember that this is the night in which Jesus is going to be betrayed, and the next day he's going to be crucified. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ in his discipline demanded more of himself even than he did 
of others. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took, him, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And he saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. He invited all of the disciples to watch and pray. He took Peter, James, and John, the inner circle with him even farther. And, and really, in this sense, really just kind of bared his soul to them in the fact about his soul is exceeding sorrowful and very heavy, even unto death. And then he goes a little further and he prays and he asks for them to support him in that and to pray with him. He knew they were tired. It was late at night, but he asked of them to be disciplined uh, and to be with him. And yet, uh, though he expected that of them, he always expected more of himself. And then also, a godly man who's one who has a tough hide and a tender heart ignores personal suffering, but is quick to recognize and relieve others' suffering. Even Jesus on the cross in John 9 and 19 and verse 27 the Bible records, then saith he to that disciple. So it's John that's writing it. John's referring to himself. So Jesus says to John, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Even though Jesus is bearing the guilt and the weight of all of our sin on the cross as the innocent and perfect lamb of God, creating uh, for us the way of salvation, fulfilling the father's divine plan in the very moment of his death, in that suffering and all this eternally momentous event he is fulfilling, he does not forget his mother's needs and says to John, behold your mother. And John knew what that meant and he took care of Mary. That is a real man. A real man has a tough hide and a tender heart. Second of all, a real man has integrity. His word is his bond. In Psalm chapter 15, it begins with this question, who shall abide in thy tabernacle and in your holy hill? And then it begins to go through these different qualities of one who fears and worships God. And in Psalm uh, 15 and verse 4, the Bible declares, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. His word is his bond. Now, James' admonition in James chapter 5 and verse 12 is, But above all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. We ought to be such men of our word that we ought not, when we tell somebody, to have to say, Now, I promise you, I am telling you the truth. All right? got to believe me on this one. I'm being completely open and transparent now. We ought not to have to qualify our statements. Our yes ought to be yes, our no ought to be no. What we say ought to be the truth, and we need to stand behind what we say. When we make a promise or a commitment, we need to back it. Unless we make a foolish, ungodly, Christ-dishonoring commitment 
when we're walking in the flesh. And later we're rebuked by the Spirit of God. And we need to go back to that person in that case and say, Hey, listen, what I promised to you, I promised to you when I was walking in the flesh, not in the Spirit. It is wrong. This is why it's unbiblical and why I cannot fulfill my word in that. But folks, we need to promise to our... Listen, if we make a, a, some sort of a financial deal, even if it comes to our disadvantage and we can get a better deal somewhere else, if we have made a commitment, we need to keep that commitment. When we made a promise to somebody and it inconveniences our plans... And we have to cancel something else that we wanted to do because we have made a a verbal commitment. Our word needs to be our bond. A godly man is a man of integrity. A real man has integrity. His word is his bond. His words are without guile. Satan is the master at this. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 5, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the tree, fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Folks, men, we need to be men of integrity. Our words need to be without guile. The word guile comes from a word in the Greek, the Greek word for guile means a decoy. It means a bait. It means trap, subtlety. Kind of like we should have, we could, someone says, well, ah, you, should have, you should have read the fine print. You know, so we publicly, have you ever, have you ever um, read an announcement? You know, you've seen an announcement, an ad in a newspaper or something, or seen something on TV, and you're like, oh boy, that sounds like a great deal. I need to get in on that. And then you go to the store to get in on that deal, and they say, ah, yes, well, you didn't read the fine print. Now, you know, and then there's all these stipulations to the great deal, and you realize this is no great deal after all. This is just a gimmick to get us in the door. All right, that's guile, that's subtly, that's trickery, that's bait, you know? Um, or kind of this thing where we, we, we uh, say we're going to do something or we make a statement and it is expressed in a way that seems to be absolutely sincere and straightforward. And then somebody calls us on it later and says, ah, oh, you don't understand. I was just kidding. Folks, we need to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. For even here unto ye called because that Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Our word needs to be our bond. Our words need to be without subtlety, without guile. We ought not to ever purposely misdirect somebody with what we are saying. And then... He is transparent in his dealings with others. You remember Laban's bait and switch? Right? Well, let me read to you in Genesis chapter 29. We'll pick this up in verse 25. This is after the wedding, the first wedding. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Who did he think he'd married? Rachel. Rachel. And he said to Laban, what is this thou hast done to me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? How long did he serve? Seven Seven years. Wherefore hast thou beguiled me? There's that word. And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Think you could have made that obvious at the beginning when this was first proposed? Hey, let me work for you seven years for Rachel's hand. Should not Laban have said, Hey, no, wait a minute. Um, Can't do that. In our culture, it's not done that way. He, He should have been straightforward then. But he purposely got another seven years of hard work. 
because of his guile, because he was not straightforward in his business dealings with others. So Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve me yet seven other years. Gotcha. So I think this applies in so many different aspects. It could be that you're selling something on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. You better accurately represent what you're selling. And you need to give a straightforward answer when somebody asks you about something. And you ought not to hide any defects or problems with whatever it is that you want to sell. Because that is not being honest and straightforward. That's not being a man of your word. We need to be transparent in our business dealings with others. And then... A man of integrity is consistent in public and in private. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Oh man, they appeared to be so holy. They could pray all of these prayers. They appeared to be so spiritual. And yet there were the backroom dealings where they were robbing poor, helpless, defenseless widows and robbing them blind, while at the same time acting like that they were serving God. And so generous by tithing of mint and cumin and all these different things. We need to be consistent in public and in private. So a real man is a man with a tough hide and a tender heart. A real man has integrity. Third of all, a real man is a servant. Real man makes personal sacrifices to meet the needs of others. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Jesus said, for even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. That word minister means to what? It means to serve. To give his life a ransom for many. He also protects others without self-regard. Remember in John chapter 18 and verse 8 that Jesus answered, I have told you I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. He was trying to protect his disciples in that hour when they came to arrest him. And then he doesn't consider any act of service to be beneath his dignity. Jesus in John chapter 13, verses 13 to 16. Ye call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and master, have washed your feet. Probably one of the nastiest, most lowly jobs that the servant that got all of the worst jobs would do that's what jesus did for his disciples they should have been washing his feet he was their rabbi he was their master they knew he was messiah god in the flesh and when they came to the upper room the host who provided that upper room did not provide a servant which would have been customary for him to do to wash the disciples feet and to wash jesus feet you know why the disciples didn't wash each other's feet because they were too busy arguing about who'd be greatest in the kingdom about putting their mother up to asking Jesus a favor so they could sit on one hand and the other hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom so that they could be in those places of great power. And in the middle of all of their arguing and squabbling when dinner is over, Jesus, without a word, gets up and lays aside the garments of a rabbi. And he puts on and girds a towel like a servant and gets a basin and pours water into it and goes around one by one he washes the dirty feet of the disciples who had stinking attitudes. A real man is a servant. Jesus said, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, 
You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If Jesus would wash stinking feet of disciples with rotten, prideful attitudes, there ought to be nothing beneath the dignity of a godly man to do in service for others. And then a real man is prepared. He has a large, long-term perspective. I think of Nehemiah here. Nehemiah chapter 21 and verse, or Nehemiah 2, excuse me, verse 17. Then he said unto them, this is Nehemiah. Ye see the distress that we are in. Our Jerusalem lieth waste. The gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. Folks, this hadn't just gone on for a few weeks. This had gone on for years. Jerusalem was in reproach. The walls were broken down. The people were defeated. They were living there, some of them. But they were constantly in danger. They were always being taken advantage of. The, the temple was supposed to be rebuilt. The worship in the temple of the one true God was supposed to be established. But until the walls were rebuilt and the city got cleaned up and there was security, they could not consistently keep the temple open for worship. And Nehemiah had a great vision and a large perspective. Let's rebuild these walls. Let's all pitch in. We'll rebuild the walls. We'll get that security. They had already relayed the foundation of the temple. The, the temple had been built. Haggai comes along and says, hey, listen, it's time for you to stop living in your paneled fancy houses. And you need to get back to finishing the work that God called you to do, which is to rebuild the temple. So they were in also in the midst of that. So they were rebuilding the temple. And, and Nehemiah helped to, to reinstitute uh, some of the observances, Old Testament observances. Read through the book of Nehemiah uh, for the month of November. Uh, I read through Numbers, Nehemiah, and Nahum. I had an end month. And, uh, and so I read through each of those books several times. And it's amazing the things, how that he was so zealous for God, uh, how he, would, he, he even went and, and confronted the priests and the Levites. He got things reestablished. He got things cleaned up. Um, the nobles were doing things they should not have been doing, taking advantage of the people and charging interest of their Jewish brethren and claiming their fields and all these other things when the people were underneath uh, a difficult time already. And, and Nehemiah is providing for the people and he confronts the nobles, stop doing this, return the hundredth part of that money that you have been uh, charging them. And, uh, and he became governor of Jerusalem, not because he wanted to be raised up to be a governor. He was the king's cupbearer. Uh, for Artaxerxes, the king, but he wanted the worship of God to be reestablished. He wanted the people not to be in reproach. He wanted God's name to be glorified. And he had a plan for rebuilding the wall. And in 52 days, walls that had for decades been destroyed and rubble were rebuilt into a strong fortress. And the worship of God and the observances that were demanded of the Jews of the Old Testament were reinstated under Nehemiah's leadership because he had a vision and a purpose. I'm not going to reveal it yet, but this is just a little teaser. We're going to have a 2024 theme, and it comes from Nehemiah. And I trust that as on Sunday morning, January 7th, I'm going to preach a message on that theme verse and the surrounding passage and then Sunday night on the 7th 
is going to be some of the practical things in which we're going to apply that at Berean Baptist Church. So I trust that that will build an anticipation for you as to what God has for us. I'm really excited about it, and I think that it will be a great encouragement and challenge to you as it has been to me. I know our pastoral staff is really excited about it, and so that's going to be coming from the book of Nehemiah. But he had a large, long-term perspective. He has goals. A real man is prepared. He has large, large, long-term perspective. He has goals and a plan to reach them. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? Now remember that when Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem was in reproach, his brother came to him. and He's the cupbearer of the king. And he says, Hey, how are things at Jerusalem? And his brother Hanani says, The people are in reproach. The walls are still burned with fire. And there's rubble. And there's breaches in the walls. And the people are in reproach. He sat down. He wept. He prayed. He fasted. But he still had his responsibilities to the king's cupbearer. And one day he came before the king's presence. And the king says, Nehemiah, why this countenance? This is nothing but sadness of heart. That can get you killed. You weren't supposed to look sad at all in the presence of the king. And yet, being the king's cupbearer, he was a very close friend of the king. He says, why should not I be sad when my people are in reproach and when my, when my people are in reproach in the city? Um, it, it is, is broken down. And, and so the king says, well, what, what would you, the king said to me, what dost thou, for what dost thou make request? So the king granted him this opportunity. Well, you know what? I think that though Nehemiah had been praying and fasting about this a long time, he was formulating some plans. Because look at his plans. He said, so I pray to the God of heaven. That's just a quick, Lord, help me be able to remember everything that I've been thinking about and planning and that you put in my heart. Okay, I think it was one of those quick, silent, flare prayers that he shoots up to the Lord. Real quick, all right? And then I answered the king. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And when shalt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Folks, you know what, men? Godly homes don't happen by accident. Godly marriages, Christ-honoring marriages, don't happen by accident. What goals do you have for your family in this coming year? What goals do you have for your marriage? What are you working toward? Because a real man is prepared. We had a long, large-term, large, long-term perspective about our families about our impact of our life in our, in, our, in our own personal ministry, as well as however we're involved at Berean Baptist Church or what other ministries you may be involved. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have goals and a plan for reaching them. Nehemiah did. And then he has tools and training. We continue. Moreover, Nehemiah says, I said unto the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. So he had official documentation so that nobody could say, hey, Nehemiah, on whose authority are you doing this? Say, here it is, king's sealed signature right here. I have all of the authority, I have protection, and I have provision. And the letter unto Asaph, keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertaineth to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And so he realized there are going to be things, tools that I'm going to need, and these official documents are part of those tools that I need, and these requisition forms to get the materials to do this rebuilding. I'm going to need that. Um, right here, the king can grant me that. I'm going to ask for these things so that he had the equipment, he had everything that he needed. He didn't just have a great idea, and he didn't just have a goal, but he had a practical understanding of how he needed to be equipped. 
The Bible says in Proverbs 22 and verse 29, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. And mean does not mean not nice. It means little, all right, or insignificant. And so we need to, men, be developing those abilities uh, that God has given us. And we need to be increasing in our skills and in our knowledge, not for our own benefit and profit, but for uh, the glory of God. Yes, to be a benefit to our family, but also to others in our community and for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. He is alert. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And so he was prepared for the enemy. He heard that they're going to start attacking. They're going to attack from all quarters. I mean, they tried to distract him and say, hey, come out to the plain of Ono. We got something we want to discuss with you. And you know what Nehemiah said to the invitation to Ono? Oh, no. You're not going to trick me. Um, You know, one of the guys in Jerusalem said, hey, they're coming after you, Nehemiah. They want to kill you and kind of just stop all this from happening. Go hide in the temple. Nehemiah said, why should a man such as I hide in the temple? He knew that they just wanted to discredit him through cowardice and besmirch his name. He said, I'll not run. He stayed there. He was a leader, but he was alert. And so the men worked. The men that were laying the block were villain lay in the block with a sword girded on with others standing guard with weapons they stayed at jerusalem even though many of them had homes and villages outside jerusalem's wall they stayed inside jerusalem they slept in their clothes they had their weapons right by them they were watchful they were ready they were alert hey men we need to be alert do you know what the spiritual needs are in your home and among your family do you know what cultural dangers lurk just outside that satan would try to use to to deceive and to attack your family spiritually are you alert in your own life wherefore let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall we are to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation we need to be alert i'm going to i'm going to conclude this message tonight by reading and i trust this will be a practical help to you um when my son turned 13 years old. Uh, I wrote him a letter about what a man is, what a godly man is. I'm not going to read that letter in its entirety, but I'm going to read an excerpt. You'll be able to follow along and read the excerpt with me on the screen, I believe. But here's the definition. Here's when I, when I was working on mentoring and discipling my son. Here is what I wrote to him when he turned 13 as a part of that. A godly man is someone who follows God so he can lead others. Who acts biblically instead of reacting naturally and who serves and gives to others trusting God to meet his needs. From another part of the letter, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so I wrote, now is the time for you to put off talking like a child about childish things to stop excusing your actions and attitudes as if you were still a child. Oh, he's just a kid. That sort of thing. And to, mature, and to mature in your thinking and reasoning by considering how today's choices affect the future. In another part of the letter, I said, this growth process needs to be guided by a code of conduct. Here is ours. I will obey God's word and do his will because I love him. I will serve, protect, and give to others because I love them. I will put forth my best effort to excel in everything I do to God's glory. 
I will cheerfully endure hardship, preserving until God grants me success and redirecting all praise to him. I will conduct myself in public and private with integrity and purity. I will humble myself continually by comparing my character to God's. I will invest my life so that I will earn God's eternally lasting rewards. And then from another part of the letter, the, these character, quali- the, the co- character qualities that make up this code of conduct are loyalty, servant leadership, kindness, humility, purity, honesty, self-discipline, excellence, integrity, and perseverance. Start here, and as God teaches you, add to these qualities those attributes that God reveals to you in his word. A life lived for God is filled with joy and peace, but also with battle and hardship. We have only one life to live for God, so we must make it count. We can't let disappointments defeat or distract us. We can't look for immediate rewards for our obedience. But we can be assured that God will take care of us and reward us in his timing. What is a godly man from a biblical perspective? A godly man is one who has a tough hide and a tender heart, who has integrity, is a servant, is prepared, and who follows after the character of Christ. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. We're not really going to have an invitation tonight. But I do want to challenge all of our men and boys at whatever stage of life they're in right now that each of us would take these truths to heart and say, that is the kind of man I want to be. You'll notice that many of the passages came directly from the life of Christ because he is the perfect man. And he is the one that we are to emulate and to pursue. And I trust that this will be a practical help to you in your understanding of what a real man is from a biblical perspective. And ladies, those of you who are married, pray for your husbands that God will continue to transform his life into being a real man of godly integrity and these other character qualities. Support and encourage him. For those of you young men that you're not husbands yet or fathers, take to heart these things. Set these as goals. Be challenged to be a real man. What God says a real man is. Our Father... We are so grateful for the ministry of the Horners and for our other missionaries. We stop right now not only to give you thanks for them, but to pray for your continued strength, for good health, for financial provision, so that our missionaries will be able to do the work of the ministry unhindered by those temporal concerns. We know that they're going to face satanic opposition we are in spiritual warfare help us lord to facilitate and support our missionaries so much that they have no concerns about those other needs so that they can be focused in spiritual warfare fighting against the kingdom of darkness for the souls of men and women and boys and girls and then to disciple and to train believers to maturity and to train pastors and evangelists and teachers continue on the training until you return. Lord, may we be faithful to serve you here. 
And may this message tonight resonate in the hearts of our boys and of our men. And we cause each of us to desire to be a man according to your definition. I pray, Lord, for our ladies, that they would be women of integrity, women whose word is their bond, ladies who have tender hearts to the ministry, ladies who are servants, and all of these other things. These things apply to all of us. But Lord, especially we men need this challenge tonight. And so we pray that you would work in our hearts, transform us into the image of our Savior. May we be godly men who one day when we stand in your presence to give a one-on-one -on -one account to you who are the way, the truth, and the life, may we hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things for Jesus' glory and in his precious name. Amen. Would you stand with me right now? Pastor Mike is going to lead us in a dismissal chorus. Close with verse number three of O Come All Ye.